Exodus 32, which you can find on page 72 of the Blue Bibles. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he has spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of the feet, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and they made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day, Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin, they have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, 
Please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. Well, as we consider on in our, continue on in our consideration of uh, the Old Testament book of Exodus, you may remember last week we saw a blood-soaked ceremony uh, confirming the covenant agreement between the Lord and the people of Israel. If you remember the agreement, it was that he would bless them, he would be with them in the promised land as their God, and they committed as his people to be faithful to all that he commanded. Uh, we left off last week in chapter 24. Uh, Moses, you remember at the end of that chapter, had gone up to meet with the Lord. He left his brother Aaron and a man named Hur in charge during his absence. Uh, you may be wondering what happened to chapters 25 to 31. Um, if you're familiar with the book of Exodus, you'll know most of the, those chapters are um, made up of instructions that the Lord gives to his people about how to build a, a tent, a tabernacle, where he will meet with them. So the plan is to come back to those chapters in a couple of weeks when we get to the actual construction of the tabernacle. So instead of sort of, hey, here's how you build a tabernacle, and then, hey, here's how they built the tabernacle, we're going to put that together in one glorious construction-themed sermon. Uh, but as we pick up here in chapter 32, we see Moses has now been gone on the mountain for 40 days, meeting with the Lord. And at the beginning of the chapter, the people are getting nervous. So there at the beginning of, or rather the end of verse 1, uh, they say, As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So they're, they're getting worried. Moses has been gone. They're not sure what exactly is going on up in the mountain uh, beyond the smoke. And so uh, they're worried. And from that point on, everything seems to go wrong in Exodus 32. Uh, this chapter is a shocking fall back to earth. Uh, and so what I'd like to do as we think through it is something a little bit different than we normally do. Instead of just walking through the passage and explaining the details, uh, I, I want to try and hold these events up and try to use them to understand something of the nature of sin itself. Because I think at the outset we need to recognize that what's happening here in Exodus 32, it's not just an example of a bad decision that people made a long time ago. Instead, it serves as something as a, of a paradigm, a, a pattern or a model of what sin is like in the human heart. So some 1,400 plus years after the people of Israel made this golden calf, the Apostle Paul warned a church of Christian believers about the danger of sin in their lives. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, now, these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Then a few verses later in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, it says, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. So when Paul says there in 1 Corinthians 10, as it is written... He's referring back to what we see in Exodus chapter 32, specifically verse 6. Uh, Paul's point is that Exodus 32 is a story about people making a golden calf, but it's not just about what happened. Paul's saying it's about what happens. It's not just a story about then and there. Paul is saying it's also a story about here and now. Paul's telling this church that the idolatry of the Israelites... Uh, the, the sin in this story is something that's replayed and reenacted in our lives and in our churches unless we take heed and follow the instruction that we're meant to take. And so let me, as we walk through this passage, let me make six observations, six important things about the nature of sin uh, that we see here in Exodus 32. And maybe you're wondering, but Mike, isn't that going to be a really long sermon? And I'm going to say, yes, it actually is. I tried to make it shorter, but every time I touched it, it kept getting longer. So I just finally stopped and said, it is what it is. So 
uh, six observations about the nature of sin from what we see in this passage. And then I want to come back at the end and just make some observations about what we learn about the work of Jesus uh, from this chapter. So six observations. The first one, uh, we see in this passage that sin is a violation of God's revealed law. Now that might seem obvious to you, and if it is obvious, it's because it's fundamental. Right? Sin is a violation of God's law. Uh, in, back in Exodus 24 last week, we saw that Moses had read God's law to the people twice. Twice they affirmed their willingness to obey it and to be bound by it. If you remember how the, the Ten Commandments begin back in Exodus chapter 20, uh, starting in verse 2. It says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So right off the bat, the first thing you see is that the Israelites are breaking the foundational commands that God has given them. Right? They're obviously breaking the second commandment. Right? They were expressly forbidden from making an image of Yahweh. But that's exactly what they're doing here is they make a golden calf. They, they make this statue and they worship it as Yahweh, as the great I Am, the God of Israel. So you see there in verse 5. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. So speaking of the golden calf. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. There at the end of uh, verse 5, he uses God's covenant name. He says, we're going to have a feast to Yahweh. It, it seems like the Israelites understood that they were worshiping Yahweh in worshiping this golden calf. The right God in the wrong way, in violation of the second commandment. But if you look closely, it's not just the second commandment that they're violating. They were also worshiping other gods in violation of the first commandment. So there in verse 1, when they come up to Aaron, they say, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. It seems in their mind the golden calf was just sort of one of many other gods and idols that they were to follow. Perhaps they were willing to make Yahweh the first god that they created an idol of, right? just honoring him. They, he brought them out of Egypt, but, but they were wanting to make more. You see in this section a, a terrible mockery of the prologue of the, the Ten Commandments. So again, back in chapter 20, I just, just read for you, Yahweh established his relationship with Israel on the basis of his gracious salvation. Right, God's law begins with a relationship. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Right, why is Israel in covenant with Yahweh? Well, he's their God. He's the one who brought them out of Egypt. But here in verse 4, we see this terrible, terrible mockery as the people declare of the golden calf, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. It seems that they wanted a whole host of gods, including Yahweh, that they could worship. It's clear that the sin of the people is a repudiation of the Lord's law. They wanted to do things their way rather than the way that God had commanded them through Moses. That's why in verse 19, Moses smashes the, the tablets with the law on it. Moses was a man prone to sinful anger. He killed a man back in Egypt in the book of Numbers. He's going to get frustrated with people's criticism of him and lash out in anger. But here in chapter 32, verse 19, when Moses takes the tablets and he smashes them at the base of the mountain, it's not rash, sinful anger. It's prophetic anger. He's smashing the tablets as a sign to the people, as a visual picture of what they've done. They have broken the covenant. They don't deserve God's law. They've rejected it. And so Moses breaks the tablets. Sin is first and foremost a violation of God's law. And I think we need to see that we're prone to doing the same thing. We know what God has said to us. 
We are, I think, on the whole, not confused about what the Lord wants. And perhaps we even intend to obey it. We sit in church on Sunday. We echo the words of the Israelites in chapter 24. All that the Lord has commanded, we will do. We will obey. But then sometimes we go right back to doing the same things that we said we wouldn't do. We go back to sinning with a high hand. We look at things we shouldn't look at. We buy things we know we don't have the money for. We engage in self-destructive behaviors. We drink too much. We engage in sexual immorality. Why would we do that? Why do the Israelites break God's law after promising to keep it? Well, I think it's because they never really stopped loving aspects of their life in Egypt. Right? The golden calf, it wasn't some random idea. It wasn't some random image. The, the calf was a common sort of object of worship in Egypt. As former Egyptian slaves, they would have been very familiar with the sight of people worshiping calves or, or sort of cow gods. The people of Israel wanted this because it was familiar to them. This is confirmed for us in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen looks back on the history of Israel, and he says this in Acts 7 verse 39, Our fathers refused to obey him but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. You catch what Stephen said there? Why the Israelites wanted this calf? In their hearts, they turned to Egypt. One of the early church fathers, Ephraim the Syrian, he summarized this perfectly. He wrote that the golden calf incident gave the Israelites a chance to worship openly what they had already been worshiping in their hearts. Right? The golden calf incident shows that the Israelites had never really left Egypt in their hearts. Sure, they were glad to no longer be slaves, but despite what they said with their mouths, their hearts were not captured by the idea of living in a covenant with Yahweh. Our sin nature means that we all come preloaded with, it, with an insane, irrational, almost suicidal desire for the things that have been killing us and enslaving us our whole lives. And so for us, if we're to take Paul's instructions in 1 Corinthians seriously, if we are to learn from the example of Israel here in Exodus 32, we need to look down below the, the surface of our sinful behavior, and we need to see where is it that our hearts have turned back. Right? The reason why we keep turning back to sin is that, is that we've allowed it to live in our hearts. We haven't put it to death. Right? We just hope that if we manage behaviors, that, that that'll be enough. But eventually our hearts went out. My guess is that most of us are not tempted to violate God's law by worshiping a golden statue. But there are other things competing for, for the love of your heart. When we knowingly break God's law, we are nurturing that false love. So brothers and sisters, let's not do as they did. Let's name those false idols in our hearts, the things that we worship, the things that we want more than we want to obey the Lord, whether that's comfort or control or the approval of other people, or success, or pleasure, or, or money. Those things might be alluring, but they're the, they're the vestiges of our slavery. Those are, those are things that have been our captors in the past, not our saviors. Those, those are the masters from which we've been delivered, just as the Lord delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt. Those things are not the good things that the Lord is taking away from us. They are, they are the tormentors that the Lord has vanquished so that they'll no longer control us. Friend, why would you ever go back to your sin? What good did it ever do to you? You'll never obey the law of God. You'll never put sin away from your heart until you believe that serving him is better than serving sin. That it's better to keep the Lord's covenant than to worship the gods of Egypt. Uh, we need to put away those idols and replace them with the worship of the true God who's delivered us from sin's tyranny. That's the first thing that we have to, to see. Sin is a violation of God's law. We have more to get through, so uh, moving more quickly. The second thing I want us to see is that um, 
sin is rooted in a failure to trust God. So the people of Israel left on their own with Aaron and her as their leaders, and they, they begin to panic. Right? Moses has been gone for a long time, so they freak out. Now, this, of course, makes no sense. Right? God hadn't given them a timetable. He hadn't promised that Moses would be back in a week. It's not like Moses is late returning. Right? The cloud of God's presence is still on the mountain. There's no doubt that something is still going on. They just don't know exactly what's happening, and they don't know how long they're going to have to wait. And so they begin to doubt Each day that went by with no sign of Moses, they begin to get nervous. They begin to feel like maybe they need to come up with their own plan. Now, the irony, of course, is that at that moment, everything was actually going in the best way possible. God was giving Moses his plans for the tabernacle. His presence was coming to dwell with his people. They were heading to the promised land. But when it became difficult to be patient, when they didn't have a sort of daily dose of Moses talking to them, and giving them an experience of God's presence, they simply stop trusting. And again, that's crazy, right? I mean, think about it. They had seen the plagues. They had seen the Red Sea parted. They had seen the provision of miraculous food and water in the desert. They had seen smoke and fire descend on Mount Sinai. But then a few weeks pass by, and it's like they forget everything. Earlier in our service this morning, we read from Psalm 106. Remember what the psalmist said as he reflected back on these events in Psalm 106, verse 19. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Why did they make a gold calf? Because they forgot. They forgot all that the Lord had done to save them. And brothers and sisters, aren't we the same? Look at all that God has done to make you his child. God the Father, in his love, sent his Son to take on human flesh, to live as one of us, to die as our substitute, as a sacrifice for our sins. Jesus rose from the dead and sent his Holy Spirit to live in us so that we would never have to be without his presence and comfort. Even beyond that, if there is anything beyond that, think of all that God has done to care for you, to provide for you, to give you the things that you need. Look back over the course of your life and remember just for a moment answered prayer, remarkable gifts, impossible situations that were resolved in ways you never could have imagined. Think about how easily we forget If God calls on us to wait, if the answers to our prayers don't come in our way and in our timing, if the path that God calls us to walk is not the one that we would choose for ourselves, if we, like Israel, walk through a season where we don't know exactly what's going on, we don't know how long we're going to have to wait, it can be tempting to do what Israel did here, to panic, to try and manufacture a solution. Or look back on our old idols and our old ways of of thinking, Uh, fear, anxiety, doubt. Sin is rooted in a failure to trust God. We we aren't sure anymore that he's going to take care of us. We don't trust that he actually knows the best way for us to live. Okay, third thing we see about sin is that, in this passage, is that it is a perversion of the good. Uh, Everything about this sort of worship frenzy that we see in Exodus 32 is a, a kind of perversion of what God had told them to do. So you have the people offering gifts for the calf there in verse 3. Just as they're going to be instructed to offer gifts for the construction of the tabernacle, you have a false altar built there in verse 5. Remember back in chapter 20, The Lord had given instructions for the construction of an altar where they could offer sacrifices. But here in verse 5, Aaron builds a a false altar before this false Yahweh. You have someone using his artistic skills there to make objects for worship in verse 4. You have the singing there in verse 18, just like when they came through the Red Sea. You even have a sort of post-worship feast there in verse 6 just like the one that Moses and the elders had in God's presence back in chapter 24. 
So the people of Israel could convince themselves that what they were doing was perfectly permissible, even as they were doing the exact opposite of what God told them to do. That's what sin does to us. We take the good things given to us by the Lord, our, our gifts, our strength, our time, our money, and instead of using those things to serve the Lord, we use them for ourselves. And we can even convince ourselves that we're not actually sinning because there's a sort of shadow of good beneath our actions. And not everything that's wicked comes looking like pure, unvarnished evil. The Apostle Paul even tells us that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And so in our world, we take good things like love or, or tolerance, and we make them servants of evil. Other religions take good things like discipline and good works and charity and make them tools to keep people far from God. Sin corrupts. It corrupts the good. It corrupts our worship. It, it counterfeits and, and redirects the, the, the gifts that God has given us away from his worship. The fourth thing for us to see about sin is that it flourishes in the soil of fear of man. Look at, look at Aaron's defense of himself there in verses 22 and 23. In verse 21, Moses calls out, how, how could you do such a thing? How could you let this happen? Right, Aaron, I left you in charge. Aaron explains there in verse 22. He says, basically, you know what these people are like. Right? I was under a lot of stress. Right? And that's actually not untrue. Right? There in verse 1, the, the scene is that a, a mob is starting to develop. The people are demanding that Aaron make an idol for them. You can understand why it was hard. But still, he does completely cave in. He, he allows himself to be bullied by the people that he had been charged with leading. And friends, so much of our sin is motivated by just this same sort of inappropriate, overweening concern for what other people think. Right? We, we sin like this in our private lives whenever we lie or posture or participate in the sin of others to look good in their eyes. Right? Whenever we do the popular thing instead of the right thing, we sin like Aaron did. Friends, this is particularly important for us as a church. We are in a, a period of time where there is a great deal of pressure on the Christian church. Pressure from the left and from the right. Pressure from inside and from the outside. Pressure from older generations and younger generations. Right? Pressure that seeks to shape the church to some agenda other than that which is laid out for it in God's word. All right, some of the pressures are like what Aaron faced here. It calls to simply go against God's word. Other pressures are more subtle, perhaps, to divert our focus, to take our attention off the gospel and onto other topics that are more interesting, more exciting, more engaging to the world around us. But again, the example of Aaron is a warning to us. The crowd is not always right. The crowd's almost never right, in fact. And obedience to the Lord's commands might put us at odds with what a lot of people want. Well, the fifth thing we see about sin here in this passage is that, is that sin is described as being stiff-necked. You see that in verse 9 where the Lord provides his evaluation of these events. It says there, the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. It's an interesting evaluation. The Lord doesn't say they are idolatrous, particularly, or disobedient. He, he calls them stiff-necked. It's a, it's a picture that maybe doesn't make a ton of sense to us, but it would have made certain sense to people in that culture. It's a, saying someone's stiff-necked, it's a, it's a picture from uh, putting a yoke on an ox. So I guess, so I read, in order to put an oak, a yoke on an ox so that it can pull a plow, the yoke has to sort of bend its head down so you can put the tool on it. And so the ox is pretty strong, and if he won't bend his neck, if his neck is stiff, he, he's refusing to sort of take the yoke upon him. He won't, he won't do what he's being told to do. And so what kind of people are the people of Israel? They're stiff-necked. They chafed at the idea of serving God. They decided that his law was too much. So they created their own God, a, a mute idol who would never tell them what to do. Right, this golden calf 
well, hopefully it would just give them what they wanted, a sort of deity who didn't come with a preloaded set of rules. Friends, that's a good picture of our sin. When we sin, we are showing that we really want to be the boss. We are rejecting God's yoke. We, we chafe against his restrictions. We want things our way or no way. Our sin nature tells us that what we want most is a God who will stay out of our way. We want a God who will let us do whatever it is we want to do. We want a God that will let us be in authority. We don't want to wear any yoke. And so, Christian, you should ask yourself, are, are there areas in your life where perhaps you're not carving golden idols to worship, but where you are, in fact, being stiff-necked? Have you decided that, that, in fact, you will do whatever seems right to you? Do you find yourself seeking advice and talking about change, but never really doing anything differently in your life that would re- lead to a different result? Do you seem to make the same mistakes over and over and always seem to find yourself complaining about why these things happen to you? Have you walled off areas of your life where you've decided that you're not willing to obey God? Maybe you're willing to obey God in everything else except this one thing. Maybe it's your finances. Maybe it's the way you relate to your spouse, the way you interact with your friends at school. Your, your sexual behavior, your relationship with alcohol. Brothers and sisters, listen to the words of King David as he reflected on the nature and consequence of his own sin in Psalm 32. In Psalm 32, verse 9, he says this. He says, Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Do you see the image that David's using? Our sin makes us like a mule, right? an animal without understanding. It refuses to go where it's supposed to go. It has to be forced to stay near you with a bit and a bridle. David is telling God's people, don't be like that animal. Don't be, in the terms of our passage, stiff-necked. He says the Lord surrounds his people with steadfast love. Why would you sign up for the sorrows of the wicked? Friend, maybe you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Christ. Maybe you say that you don't actually believe in God. I wonder if that's possibly rooted in the fact that you you simply don't want there to be a God who tells you what to do. That, That you want to be able to keep your neck stiff and so that you never have to have a yoke. But friend, we all serve someone and something. And freedom from God's yoke is, is terrible slavery to sin. And so this passage would urge you not to be stiff-necked, not to imagine that it's better to have your way than to follow God. The sixth thing we see about sin in our passage is that it brings about God's righteous judgment. Remember the terms of the covenant that God made with Israel. He was their God. He delivered them out of slavery. He would bring them into the land where they would live with him, and they would keep the law. That's the arrangement. Here in chapter 32, they clearly, decisively break the covenant, and the consequences are devastating. There in verses 25 to 29... We see Moses call for assistance from anyone who's on the Lord's side. The sons of Levi rally to him. And in verse 28, we see that 3,000 Israelites die by the sword. At the end of the chapter, we see the Lord pronounce judgment against the people. It seems like he's distinguishing between those whose sort of sin with the golden calf was was an indication that they really weren't his people and those who were sort of simply foolish and disobedient but were ultimately loyal to them or loyal to him. Both groups experience consequences, as the Lord promises there in verse 34. The former, that that group of people who who were worshiping the the golden calf because they really never belonged to Yahweh, uh, there in verse 33, the Lord says he will blot them out of his book. It seems to indicate some kind of expulsion from membership in God's people. Uh, The latter, those sort of foolish Israelites, are, are disciplined with a plague there in verse 35. 
And friends, if you've been here in this series in Exodus, this should come as no surprise. We have seen at every turn that Yahweh is both unapproachably powerful and unimaginably holy. Right? He will no more let sin and rebellion go unpunished than a good and just judge will allow a criminal to go scot-free. Even remember back in the, the Ten Commandments, right? I'm the Lord your God. I brought you out of Egypt. Don't have any other gods. Don't make any idols. I'm a jealous God, and I, I give blessing to those who love me, and I will not let sin go unpunished, he says. That's rooted right in the nature and character of God. He is holy and just, and so sin brings terrible consequences. 3,000 Israelites die. A plague uh, comes on the people. And I think those six observations about the nature of sin, I think they set us up well to understand then the interaction between Moses and the Lord that really stands at the center of this passage. And here's where I want to conclude this morning. There in verses 9 to 10, we see the Lord's righteous indignation at the sin of the people. And I think that only makes sense to us if we've really come to see the sinfulness of sin. If those six things that we've just seen about sin are really true if we really see how awful a thing it is that the Israelites have done. We read there in verses 9 to 10. The Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Again, that, that makes sense. If you're tracking along with the storyline of Exodus, everything about that seems to be exactly what you would expect. Given the sinfulness of sin, given the sort of clarity of the, the law, right? given everything we've seen about smoke and trumpets in the way that the law was given, right? the idea that no one should come near the mountain lest they die, right? everything has prepared us for the idea that breaking the covenant that God had made with Israel would be disastrous. But there's also a tension because the Lord did not bring his people out of slavery in Egypt so that he could kill them in the desert because they're sinners. You see, Moses presses that point with the Lord there in verses 11 to 13. We read there in verse 11, but Moses implored the Lord his God. So he's being respectful, right? The Lord his God. He's not, he's not trying to come out of his place here. Moses implored the Lord his God and said, oh Lord. Why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. You see, Moses respectfully raises the issue with the Lord. Yes, the people have sinned. They deserve to be cut off. They deserve to be cast out and put to death. But you've made these promises, Lord. You've saved them for more than death in the desert. So we read there in verse 14, the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Now it's important that we don't misunderstand what's happening here. The Lord is not changing his mind in the sense that he was fully planning to do one thing and then was persuaded by Moses that there's a better course of action. Right, again, nothing that we've seen in our study of the book of Genesis or Exodus, nothing that we read in the rest of the Bible gives us any sense that God needs advice or that he takes counsel from human beings, that God ever does anything exact, except what is exactly perfect and wise. Right, because God is all-knowing and all-powerful, he never changes, he can't be acted upon by any external force. Right, so we don't want to understand here that Moses is just such a great sort of lawyer that he's convinced the, the Lord to change his mind and to do something different than what he intended to do. Instead, when verse 14 tells us that Yahweh relented of the disaster that he was going to bring on 
Israel. I think we should understand that as a sort of condescension to our understanding. Right? You see this all over the Bible. Right? You see it in the, even the language we use. Right? The song we sang earlier, what love could remember no wrongs we have done. Right? We as Christians think about God forgetting our sin. Right? God doesn't forget anything. Right? It's, just a, it's a way of speaking that helps us understand the idea that, that God doesn't hold our sin against us. Right? Last week in chapter 24, we saw that, that Moses and the other elders saw the sapphire sort of pavement below Yahweh's feet. And we, we reminded ourselves that he doesn't actually have feet. Right? It's a sort of condescending way to, to appear or to speak to us in a way that makes sense. So when here it says that God relented, right, he's, he's simply sort of communicating to us in a way that makes sense. So it's not that God is a man who needs to change his mind, who, who sometimes thinks bad ideas and has to come around and be like, yeah, well, that would have been dumb. I'm glad I didn't do that. No, instead, what we see here is that God is resolving for us the sort of tension that, that arises in this passage. Right? How is it that a stiff-necked, idolatrous, covenant-breaking people like Israel like you and me, how is it that we can live in a covenant relationship with a holy God when we keep rebelling against him, right? How can rebellious Israel avoid being wiped out by a God who is a consuming fire? Well, the answer is here in chapter 32, and it is that God has appointed a mediator. In his love, he has decided that he will select someone to stand in the gap between him and his people. Right? If you look at the passage, when it says there in verse 14 that God relented of the disaster that he sort of declared on Israel, it's clear from this passage God's plan was never to destroy Israel. Right? It, if it had been his plan, he would just would have done it. Right? He wouldn't have brought up the topic with Moses. He wouldn't have bothered sending Moses down to the people. Right? God is showing Moses the sin of the people. He's showing them that they violated the covenant and that, that they've broken the relationship so that Moses will intervene. There in verse 7, Yahweh refers to them, speaking to Moses, as your people. Right? Moses, they're yours. Right? You're now the mediator between two estranged parties. Right? If anyone is going to help the Israelites be reconciled to God, it's going to have to be Moses. So there in verse 10, when the Lord threatens judgment on the people, he applies a condition of sorts to it. He says, let me alone that my wrath might burn hot against them. Now that, that English translation might make it seem a bit like the Lord is like a, a sulky child who wants to be sort of left alone so he can do what he wants. But of course that's not the case. God is making Moses realize what will happen if he doesn't intercede for the people. Moses, if you let me alone, my wrath will burn. My holy, just, perfectly righteous wrath will consume these people. If you leave me alone, they will be destroyed. Right? That's not the Lord being sort of rash and impetuous. Those are simply the facts. The Israelites have entered into a blood covenant with the Almighty, and they had violated it in the worst way possible. They are under a death sentence. But even the mention of Moses' role there shows that God's plan is to show them mercy. God's plan is to accept Moses' mediation on their behalf. Right? God's mercy here is evident in the fact that he put Moses in this place. He knew his people would need a mediator, a defense attorney, someone who could stand in between their sin and Yahweh in his holiness. And so God chose Moses for just this situation. Again, in Psalm 106 that we read earlier in our service, the psalmist reflects back on these events and he speaks of the Lord this way. Therefore, he said he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. See, had not Moses, his chosen one, whose chosen one? Yahweh's. God appointed the very means by which his people would be delivered from his wrath. Moses intercedes. The Lord honors it. He says he will not completely blot out the people as they deserve. 
But there is still a problem. So in this sort of initial interaction up on the mountain, before Moses goes down, uh, the Lord and Moses have this back and forth. And God says, look, leave me alone and I'm going to destroy them. And Moses says, uh, Lord, don't, don't destroy them. Remember your promises. Remember your love. Think of how the Egyptians will, will mock if that happens. And the Lord says, okay, I, I accept your mediation uh, on my behalf. Then Moses goes down. He throws the tablets. And there's still a remaining problem. Something still needs to be done about their sin. Right, it needs to be paid for. The, the sort of curses of the covenant can't be ignored. Yes, 3,000 people die at the end of the passage, but, but that doesn't really take away anyone's guilt. Right, what about all the people who didn't die? Yes, there's a plague there, but, but is that really sufficient to, to make up for what they've done? Right, the, what can take away the guilt of the people in God's eyes? He had promised them mercy, but still something needed to be done. There's, there's not even a really sacrificial system in place yet where they can offer up an animal. Right? There, there can't be a relationship between a sinful people and a holy God. And so, so what's going to happen to take away the sin of the Israelites so that they can be reconciled? Well, again, Moses has a great idea. He offers himself as a sacrifice in their place. Look there in the end of chapter 32 in verses 30 to 32. The next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold, but now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. See, Moses is willing to die for his people's sake. He offers his life. He offers to even be cast out of Yahweh's book. He's a good leader, willing to die for his people. But God doesn't actually accept his offer. He will not punish Moses in the place of his people. We're actually not told why here, why the Lord rejected Moses' offer. But we do kind of find out in the rest of the Bible Right? And, and what we find out in the rest of the Bible is that in order to be a substitute for someone else's sin, you need to be sinless yourself. Right? That's why the Levitical Code requires a spotless lamb be offered as a sacrifice for sin. It has to be a sacrifice with no blemish. It has to be a picture of something perfect, dying for the sins of the people. Right? If, if you yourself are, are $50 in debt, you can't pay someone else's debt. So in a sense, Moses can't intercede in this way. It's a good offer. It's a kind offer, but the Lord won't accept it. The people will have to bear some of the punishment of their sins. There will be individual consequences, and, and corporately they experience that plague there in verse 35. So what's the point of all that then? Why would the Lord go through all of this with Moses? Why not just send the plague, show mercy, sort of, you know, Move on with things. Why, why have this whole drama on the mountain where he and Moses go back and forth? Well, I think it's actually written down so that we will see something of the structure of God's salvation. Uh, Moses, standing before God, offering his life as a substitute uh, to pay, to, to atone for the sins of his people. Maybe think of it this way. Think of Moses kind of like a stand-in for a movie star. He's the right height. He's the right weight. He's got the same hair. Right? He looks enough like the star that you can kind of get everything set. Right? While the stagehands are running around on the set, they're getting everything ready for the scene, the stand-in. He stands there so people kind of know what to expect, what the light's going to look like when the star really arrives. Right? When it's time to shoot the scene for real, the star comes on right, and the stand-in clears out. Well, as the Bible goes on, what we see is that Jesus is actually the star of God's redemption. God is using Moses like something of a stand-in to, to show us what to expect, to show us what it's going to look like when his salvation arrives, to get everything ready for, for when the star is on the scene. What we see in this passage is that everything is pointing to Jesus. He is the final fulfillment of all of this. Jesus came to a world torn apart by sin. We are all guilty of violating God's law in our sin. 
And so we are alienated from him. We are not in a right relationship with him. We are not his people. But instead, we deserve his wrath. But God had a plan to show us eternal mercy. He had a plan to raise up a mediator so that he could forgive our sins. And this mediator turns out to be far better than Moses. Jesus Christ, the one true final mediator, lived a life of perfect obedience. So unlike Moses, when he offered up his life on the cross as a substitute for our sins, as an atonement for us, as a sacrifice for us, it was accepted by God. His father raised him from the dead in vindication as proof that his sacrifice was acceptable. And brothers and sisters, it is that great truth that sinful people like you and me, that we have a mediator before a holy God, the Lord Jesus who offered himself in our place. It is that truth that we celebrate together every week as we come to the Lord's table. Because it is that truth that is our only hope in life and death. The people in Exodus 32 had no hope but that the Lord would be merciful to them, that, that he would accept Moses' intercession on their behalf. And in the same way, we in our sins have no hope apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. As we come to the table now, imagine for a second how awful it would be if we didn't have Jesus. If there were no God-appointed, God-accepted, God-approved advocate to stand in our place, Imagine how awful it would be to live your life under God's wrath because of your sin. So here as we come to the table, we come to remember the broken body and the shed blood of our mediator. Here at the table, the Holy Spirit convinces us of the Father's great love for us, that he would appoint for us his own beloved son as our substitute and mediator. And so, brothers and sisters, let's come to celebrate now at the table, laying down our sin, coming to the Lord Jesus in faith and rejoicing in all that he is for us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we delight in your love. We rejoice in your holiness, that you never change, that you leave no sin unpunished, that every evil uh, deed will be brought to justice. Father, we rejoice in your mercy that you appointed a way for sinful people like us to be in a covenant relationship with you. We thank you, Father, for sending the Lord Jesus, our covenant mediator, who, who inaugurated the covenant with his own blood shed on the cross. Holy Spirit, would you help us to hate our sin? Would you help us to, to love the, the freedom that comes from, from the yoke of following the Lord Jesus. We pray, Spirit, that you'd help us to come to the table now with great joy and that you would glorify the Lord Jesus in all that we say and do. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.